A year ago, my family and I rose one morning and we hiked to the top of Morro Rock. Now, Morro Rock is literally just a giant granite rock in the middle of Sequoia National Park. And it wasn't a particularly long climb. It wasn't a particularly strenuous climb. But when you get to the top, we tried our best to take a picture of the view. It was just amazing, but no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't capture the majesty, the grandeur, the view that you got at the top of this summit. Now, I actually think my kid's favorite moment of the hike was this moment right here. <laughs> a little shade, a little snack. <laughs> but I thought, about, I thought about this particular climb over the course of this week as I'm in Mark 11 because there is something about making a journey like this. There's something about a climb like this that releases something inside of you. It's like this anticipation, an exhilaration, a longing for what's about to come. When you have climbed and you make that final turn or you take that final step and you can see what's before you, there's just a really cool feeling associated with that. And so when we left Jesus last week in Mark chapter 10, he was in Jericho. And between chapter 10 and chapter 11, where we are today, he and his disciples make about an 18-mile journey to Jerusalem. Now today, I didn't just bring you a geographic map, I brought you a topographic map. Because I want you to see the climb that these guys did. So Jericho is right up here in the Jordan Rift Valley, and it sits at 800 feet below sea level. They make the journey to Jerusalem, which sits at 2,500 feet above sea level. So not only have they made an 18-mile journey, but they have climbed about 3,300 feet in the process. And this is why when you read in the Old Testament, there are these moments where it always talks about we're going up to Jerusalem, or there are the Psalms of Ascent, because quite literally, when you go to Jerusalem from no matter where you're going from the Holy Land, you are most likely literally going up. And I just imagine the disciples and their sense of anticipation on this journey, on this climb, on this ascent to Jerusalem. Because remember a couple of things. First off, very recently, Jesus, well, Peter has acknowledged and Jesus has affirmed that he is indeed the Messiah. And they believe we are, we are making this journey for Jesus to step into that role. But not only that, they are entering the holy city on Passover week. Now, Passover is the annual feast that commemorates and celebrates the deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And now, again, they're living under foreign occupation and oppression. But every year when Passover rolls around, they begin to wonder, is God going to bring liberation? Is God going to bring freedom to his people again? And so they're going into Jerusalem with this mindset, is this the moment? And then they turn that corner, they take that final step, they see the temple, the symbol of God's presence 
the symbol of God's freedom, a symbol of national pride gleaming in the distance. And they've just got to be wondering, is this the moment? Is this the moment that Jesus goes public? Is this the moment that he purifies the temple? Is this the moment that he establishes his kingdom and overthrows the Romans? And it's not just his disciples that seem to be filled with anticipation about this. All around Jerusalem, there are pilgrims that have come from all over the empire to celebrate Passover. And we find that this same sense of excitement and anticipation about Jesus is filling them as well. Now, spoiler alert, Mark spills about a third of the ink in his gospel on the last week of Jesus' life. When Jesus enters Jerusalem in Mark 11, it sets off a chain of events that will eventually land him on the cross. And Jesus knows this. Remember, he's just told his disciples on three different occasions, we're going to Jerusalem, but when I get there, I'm going to be handed over to the authorities, I'm going to be crucified. And so Jesus knows this is his final journey into Jerusalem. He knows this is his final trip. He knows what awaits him there. And in a nod to Old Testament prophetic significance, he rides in on a donkey. And when he does that, everybody's mind goes to Zechariah 9.9. Shout, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, riding lowly on a donkey. And if the people aren't already amped enough, this image of Jesus fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 sends them over the top. I mean, it's like when LSU football puts out their hype video right before the season. You're just, you're ready to go. And the people are ready to go. And when Jesus rides in Jerusalem, the people do two things. First, they lay their garments down before him. This is a symbol that declares this is royalty coming into the city. The other thing they do is they pick up palm branches and they wave them and they shout Hosanna. And Hosanna is simultaneously a, a message of praise. It's a declaration of praise while also asking God for deliverance. Now, when the people do this, there's something else that's firing in their redemptive imagination. Because 200 years earlier, Judas Maccabeus had overthrown the Seleucids who were occupying and oppressing the Jewish people at that time. He had overthrown them. He had purified and rebuilt the temple. And he set up a Jewish kingdom. It was the first time in years that the Jewish people had been free. And when Judas Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem, they waved palm branches. And as Jesus is now riding into Jerusalem... They're now under foreign oppression again. There's this fresh memory of freedom in their minds. And here comes Jesus. And it is Passover. Is this the moment? Is this the king? Is the kingdom breaking forth? Is this the time? And Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And then he mounts the temple mount. And he looks around. And then he leaves. <laughs> It's this really anticlimactic moment in the book of Mark. He just, he looks around, and then it says, because the hour was late, he left. <laughs> We're going to pick it up the next day in Mark 11, 
verse 12. If you have your Bibles with you today, go over and, and join me there. We'll walk through this together. But what Jesus does in that moment, the temple, is he's setting up what is to come next. He's inspecting the temple. The next day we read, verse 12, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So this begins a section of text that scholars, very scholarly called uh, Mark and Sandwich, in which Mark tells us two different stories that are sandwiched together so they can reflect on and comment on one another. So this is kind of what it looks like. You have the cursing of the fig tree, and then you have what he's about to do in the cleansing of the temple, and then we come back to the cursed fig tree. This is the, the Mark and Sandwich that we're going to we're going to chew on today. Now, this moment seems a little bit out of character for Jesus. It's like he's a little bit cranky. It's a little bit capricious. Like, he's cursing a fig tree for not having figs when it's not supposed to have figs. So, is it just, like, is, the, is it just getting to him? Like, he knows it's the final week and it's just the pressure's mounting. Like, what's going on? Because then, after this moment, he goes in the temple and he goes ballistic on the merchants and money changers. Now, I don't know about you, but here's what happens for me. When I get to a place in scripture that makes me a little uncomfortable, like either I don't know what to do with it, or it seems out of character, like God's not behaving the way he's supposed to behave, or it's something that I'm being told to do I don't want to do, I just keep reading. <laughs> like, I just let time and inertia become my ally and just hope I get to a place where I'm like, oh, it resolved itself. We're back to, we're back to happy Jesus now. <laughs> but here's what I want to encourage us to do. Every time we read scripture, um, even, when, even when we don't like it or don't understand it, maybe especially when we don't like it, we don't understand it. There are three things I want to encourage us to do, and we're going to do these together today. One is simply read. Ask the question, what does the text say? Not what do we think that it says. Not what do we hope that it says. Simply, what does it say? What does it not say that maybe we always thought it did say? What does the text say? Number two, understand. What does the text mean? And particularly, what did it mean to the original audience? What did the author mean when he was writing this to a Roman audience 2,000 years ago? And sometimes this takes a little bit of digging. We have to dig a little bit into history and culture and archaeology and language to kind of figure out what was meant when the author first wrote it. And then finally, number three, obey. The question is, what does the text require of me? Because following Jesus doesn't mean we just have a lot more information about him. Following Jesus doesn't just mean a lifetime of accumulating knowledge. Following Jesus means walking in obedience to what he says. Following Jesus means that we subject ourselves, we submit ourselves to the authority of the words of Jesus 
so that we can be better imitators of his ways and more effective partners in his mission. It's more than just finding like a practical application or a best practice for the day. It's asking, what does this text require of me today? So let's do this. We've got, what does the text say? We've got a fig tree with leaves, but no fruit, because it wasn't the time for fruit. Jesus gets angry, curses it, may no one ever eat of you again. Three things that I, help, I think help us understand what's going on. One, it's helpful to remember or to know that the fig tree in the Old Testament represented Israel. It was a metaphor for the temple. So when people, when Jewish people see fig tree, they think Israel. They think God's people. They think temple. The second thing that's really, really helpful to understand about this passage, which the original readers would probably get because they live in this environment, they know this place, they know how things work. The fig tree was a really interesting plant. So it puts out its leaves in spring and then puts out a crop of really wonderful, juicy, amazing fruit in late summer. But it puts out like a pre-crop in spring. So when, the, when, it, when it puts its leaves out, very shortly after that, it puts out a fruit that's very small and knobby and hard and honestly not very good. Like you don't want to eat that fig. But what it does is it signifies that the tree is healthy. It signifies that fruit is coming. It says this tree has potential. If a fig tree puts out leaves but doesn't put out that early fruit, there will be no edible fruit in the late summer. The third thing that I think is helpful for us to understand, and this is a little bit of a a preview, I think what Jesus is doing with the fig tree is giving his disciples a preview of what he's about to do in the temple. He's wanting to peel back the curtains of heaven, as he often does with his disciples, and say to them, I need you to understand why I'm about to do what I'm going to do in the temple. And this cursing of the fig tree, because I'm seeing this tree that looks great on the outside, but doesn't have any fruit and shows no potential of fruit. I'm about to do something in the temple, and this is going to help you guys understand it. He's acting out a parable. Then we keep reading, Mark eleven fifteen. On reaching Jerusalem, this is the second day, he goes into the temple courts, this is his second time in, and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? I'm emphasizing that because I think it's important. But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Okay, let me hit a pause button for a minute, and I want to point out something. Again, what does the text say? The enemy's 
of Jesus were the chief priests, the scribes, and the teachers of the law and the elders. It says explicitly here, the chief priests were looking for a way to kill Jesus. They were having a hard time doing it because he was so popular with the people. And Mark says this over and over again. From this point all the way up to the cross, the chief priests are trying to figure out how do we arrest, how do we deal with Jesus because everybody loves him. I would submit to you today that the crowds who cried crucify on Good Friday were the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, and their cronies. It was a different crowd than the one that cried Hosanna when he rose in on a donkey. Jesus still had great popularity with the crowd. And when Jesus walks into the temple, he, he does this thing that we have often called the cleansing of the temple. But it really wasn't a cleansing. It was a complete shutdown. Like he walked in and just shut down operation, says, let's take a break. Let's just take a moment. And it's, it's a little tricky to understand exactly what Jesus is doing here. Again, it's, it's kind of like the fig tree, like what's going on? Because, because Jesus evidently here isn't critiquing the temple in and of itself. And, and the reason I know this is because later in the week, either he or one of his disciples will go back to the temple to make the sacrifice to celebrate the Passover together. After the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, his disciples continue to go to the temple. Paul, even, years later, will go back to the temple to follow Jewish uh, purification rites. So if Jesus isn't critiquing the temple itself, if he's not got a problem with the temple in and of itself, what is his problem here? Now, I would submit, and we'll look at this, we'll get into some of that understanding and, and, and cultural digging. I think that what Jesus is critiquing here is not the temple itself, but the leaders of the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and those who are controlling the temple mount. And he's critiquing them for two things. Number one, like the fig tree, you lack fruit. And number two, like the fig tree that is disconnected from its source, you have not practiced faithfulness. Now, let me, let me dig into two things here. He, he quotes two passages. The first thing he quotes is Isaiah 56, when he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. I'm going to put this entire passage on the screen for you. You can take a picture of it if you want. You can dig in this on your own later if you want because I think this context helps us understand what Jesus is upset about. Jesus is my house of prayer will be a house of prayer for all nations. Now stick with me for a moment. There is a marketplace set up around the Temple Mount. The reason for this is because pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem to sacrifice animals for the Passover. And if you are making a seven-day journey from the Galilee, you don't bring your own animal. Because to make a sacrifice, the animal has to be perfect and pure and unblemished. And after that journey, there is a good chance your animal is going to get injured or eaten or you know, whatever. And so there is a legitimate activity that is happening. The merchants are providing a legitimate 
um, answer to a need. It's legitimate activity. I don't think Jesus' problem was the idea that commercial activity was taking place on the Temple Mount. I think what Jesus had a problem with was where commercial activity was happening on the Temple Mount. Because you see, they were set up in the outer court, the court of Gentiles. It was the only place on the Temple Mount that non-Jewish people, that Gentiles could come and pray, could come and be in the presence of God, could come and enjoy the blessing of God. It was the only place that a seeker Somebody that was just trying to figure it out could get close to the presence of God. And Jesus is saying, you've shut them out. And I've got a problem with that. Because all the way back in Genesis 12, when when God got this whole thing started with Israel, he said, look, guys, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. I'm going to turn you into a people who blesses all nations. And then back to Isaiah 56, this prophet declares that the temple is a place that God desires to bring all people, that all people would experience his presence and his joy and be included. And Jesus is saying, guys, you've shut out the people God cares about. And he shut it down. He said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. The second thing he does is he quotes Jeremiah 7. He says, you have made it into a den of robbers. And again, I'm going to show you all of Jeremiah 7 so you can look into it later. The reality is the priesthood controlled the economy on the Temple Mount. They controlled the price of sacrifices. They controlled the exchange rate of currency. And they were getting rich off the oppression of their own people. A recent archaeological discovery, I'm, I'm, going, I'm taking a group to Israel in June of 2024. And if you come with me, you will see this house. There is a recent excavation in Israel that archaeologists believe to be the house of the high priest Caiaphas. The high priest at the time of this story. He lived in a house that was 6,000 square feet in first century Jerusalem. Crown molding. Frescoes on the walls, tile mosaics on the floor, imported Roman china. These are not people suffering under Roman occupation. They're profiting at the expense of their own people. And Jesus shuts it down. You failed to be fruitful, you have failed to be faithful. Verse 20, the next morning they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Jesus tells his disciples this great story like, hey guys, I shut down the house of prayer yesterday, but what I want you to know, prayer is still part of the game. But then it's like he gives this amazing teaching on prayer. Say to this mountain to jump into the sea and it will happen. But you got to forgive people. It's like they had to be really excited about the first part and then, oh. We got to forgive people. It's interesting, some people think that because of where Jesus was standing, that the mountain he was talking about could have been the Temple Mount or the Mount of Olives, and the sea he was talking about could have been the Dead Sea. 
And, and sometimes we read this teaching on prayer and, and we turn it to kind of like a name it, claim it thing. Like whatever I want God to do for me, he's going to do for me if I believe enough. And we forget this little forgiveness piece on the end. We also have to remember that this wasn't Jesus only teaching on prayer. And we have, to, we have to put those all together and remember that when we pray, it has to be in the will of God, for the glory of God, in the way of God. But he says, look, guys, I threw a fit yesterday. The fig tree wasn't fruitful. The temple was not fruitful. My people have not been faithful. The temple may not be a house of prayer for all nations, but my house is about to take up residence and every praying person that is walking around here. Just remember that forgiveness is part of the equation. It's like Jesus is coming to the end of his earthly life. Like he knows this is, it's getting close. It's getting real close. And he's like, guys, I just need you to hear me say a few last important things. Produce fruit, practice forgiveness. Produce fruit that is planted in a faithful life. And pray prayers that practice forgiveness. Very, very quickly, let, let's take this first one, produce fruit. At the very beginning of Mark, in Mark 4, Jesus kicks off his public ministry by telling the parable of the soils. It's his first teaching. It's this story about, you know, that the seed is, he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm spreading my word and I'm looking for people that will take my word and let it take root in their hearts and then produce a crop, produce fruit. And you can, you can follow this thread all the way through the book of Mark. This is like the organizing metaphor of Mark. It's Jesus teaching and looking for people that will take his word and plant it in their hearts and produce fruit. But Jesus is saying, look, the, the fig tree looked fruitful. The temple looked amazing. But it's not producing. You've got to produce fruit. Now, how about some times in my life, like where I tried to make the outer court of my life look fruitful? Anybody else had a collection of 80s Christian t-shirts? Let me show you one. I wore this shirt. It played off the popularity of guest brand jeans. Everybody was wearing these guest shirts. Come on, who had one of these guest shirts? You're showing your age. But I didn't just have a guest brand shirt. I had a guess who loves you shirt. Jesus. I'm fruitful. I am faithful. Now, guys, here's the one that's really embarrassing. I had this shirt, my foot is on the rock, and my name is on the roll. I mean, first of all, you've got to have a pretty developed understanding of biblical symbology to even understand what that shirt's saying. What is the roll? What is the rock? Where's your foot? What? But I thought, like I thought, man, I am turning the outer court of this temple into a place that people are going to find Jesus. And I 
just, I'm so great. I think God looks back on that. Like, I look back on that, and I just groan, and I'm embarrassed. I think God looks back on that. I think God, does, like, God is pleased with, like, the little displays of faithfulness that we are obedient to with the information we have and the time we have. And just praise God. He gives us grace to grow. But I can't stand up here today and act like I, I got it figured out. Because in 10 years, I'll be laughing about something else I did. Now, the question I have to ask about fruitfulness in my life today is, am I a person that is willing to defer my preferences? Am I welcoming to people that are seeking God? Do, Do love and joy and peace leak out of me when I'm squeezed? Do I respond with patience and kindness and goodness when I'm I'm wronged? Do I stand firm in in faithfulness and in gentleness and in self-control when everything around me is in chaos? Plant in faithfulness. Produce good fruit. And then next, pray prayers that practice forgiveness. There was a common prayer in Jesus' time called the 18 benedictions. In fact, Jesus, he played off of these 18 benedictions when he taught the Lord's Prayer. And there are three moments in those 18 benedictions where the Jewish people would ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness of debts, forgiveness of trespasses, forgiveness of sins. And Jesus included that line in his Lord's Prayer. Forgive us. But then he added a little phrase that wasn't a part of the prayer. As we forgive those who trespass against us. He made forgiveness contingent upon our action. Like he gave us a role to play in the process. And so every time we pray the Lord's Prayer and we pray for forgiveness, it's like a petition and also a reminder. Is there somebody I need to forgive? Who do I need to forgive today? Now let me... Let me be really, really careful about this. Forgiveness does not mean endorsing what happened. It doesn't mean accepting what happened. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're okay and and whatever they did, they're just, it's okay, whatever. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you found healing. It doesn't mean that the wound has closed. It doesn't mean that the scars have disappeared. It doesn't mean just forgetting. It doesn't even mean reconciling. Forgiveness means giving up the right to hurt someone back. Forgiveness begins when we let go of getting even. And our prerequisite for forgiveness is not our readiness or the other person's regret. It's the fact that Jesus forgave us. And I think when Jesus is teaching his disciples about forgiveness, he's like pre-gaming them for the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus raises the bar. It's like he's upset with the temple leadership right now, but he's saying, look, I'm still forgiving. I'm still walking in forgiveness. And even on the cross, he will hang on the cross and say, Father, forgive them. 
the people that drove the spikes through his hands and his feet. He will look at the thief that is hanging next to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. We pray from a posture of forgiveness and we're reminded to spread God's forgiveness to the world. Mark records all of Jesus' teaching in the last week of his life on the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. It's like you just have better perspective when you're in those places. And as he's, as he's teaching from those mounts, he's calling his disciples to a higher level, a more radical place of obedience and sacrifice to be like him, to be with him, to be shaped into his character. And he says, produce fruit that is planted in faithfulness. Pray prayers that practice forgiveness. Fruitfulness, faithfulness, forgiveness. That's it. I, that's the whole message today. That, that, that's it. Be fruitful. Be faithful. Practice forgiveness. It's so simple. <laughs> I don't have anything earth shattering to share today. Just be fruitful. Be faithful and practice forgiveness. It's really simple until you try to start living it out. And to live it out, I believe, requires us to climb another hill with Jesus. And that's the hill that led him to the cross. Because that's where following Jesus leads us. Following Jesus leads us to a place where the only way we can do these things is by deferring our preferences. By making someone else's good our highest priority. By taking up our cross and following him. And it is not easy. But it's what we get when we follow Jesus. That's what we're signing up for. But we also get the empty tomb. We get that place where the impossible becomes possible, where all bets are off, where there is life and life abundantly, where every hurt and habit and hang up is met with freedom, where every trial, trauma, and tragedy you face in your life finds redemption. Would we, can we just follow Jesus today? Can we follow Jesus today? For many of you here, it's just a recommitment. It is a recommitment to saying, Jesus, I will be faithful. I want to produce fruit. I want the outer court of my life to be welcoming to those that are seeking you. And I will practice forgiveness in a way that is countercultural and makes people pay attention. For some of you today, both here and online, th this may be a moment where you make a decision to follow Jesus for the first time where you come to the cross for the first time. And I want to invite you to make that decision today to just throw it all in for Jesus, to plant yourself in faithfulness, to begin to follow him both to the cross and to the empty tomb where you'll find life. This morning our altar is open. If you want to make a recommitment in your life to practice faithfulness, to produce fruit, to be forgiving, would you just come down here as the band leads us? If you want to make a decision to follow Jesus for the first time, our prayer team, our pastoral staff will be down here. Would you just come? Let someone pray with you. Let someone pray for you. As the band leads us, would you make your move today?